Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. So thanks for joining us today. We are excited about a lot of the things coming up. Uh, just excited about continuing to build this digital community together. Yeah, that's one of the missions uh, that we set out to accomplish when we when we made this this podcast. And so it's been fun hearing from from many of you over the last I don't know month or two, uh, in particular as we've as we've launched into a new season. Yeah, for sure. So. Uh, Keep joining us. Uh, keep sharing this with uh, with others. That's how this thing grows, and especially for maybe those who are looking for a way to engage with spirituality, who who maybe can't find a, a place that feels feels comfortable for them. Maybe this can be that place, and we just invite you to continue sharing it. Yeah, you know, it was fun actually getting this episode in particular uh, together, as we're already planning a road trip for this coming summer, uh, going down to the southwestern uh, United States, and we've talked some about that. But last last summer we were in, in New York City. That's pretty crazy. That's it was pretty crazy. Beautiful out there. It was so great. And when we were out there, uh, we talked with today's guest, uh, Jason Storbakken. So Jason spent nearly ten years uh, as the director of compassionate care at the Bowery Mission, which is where we uh, met him. And he oversaw programs and provided pastoral care to the poorest and most vulnerable New Yorkers. And as a minister to the homeless, he learned a lot about what it means to truly be part of a beloved community. And since we talked with Jason last summer, he has taken on a position as pastor at Manhattan Mennonite Fellowship in New York City. The church is part of the historic Peace Church movement, oriented towards peace and social justice, nonviolent resistance, and faith formation as key themes of Christian witness. Yeah, we had a great conversation with Jason, and we're excited to share it with you now. So welcome to episode 59, An Afternoon at the Bowery, with Jason Storbakken. Enjoy. Well, we're sitting here with Jason in his office at the Bowery Mission, and uh, would like to hear more about your story and, and, and what you're passionate about these days, what you're working on. Great. Thanks for inviting me to be on um, your podcast. So I've been in the Bowery Mission at, in this location for seven years, and this is a gospel rescue mission. There's a few hundred of them across the country, and there are two in the city. And this is a historic rescue mission. We've been here since 1879. Since 1879. Wow. Yeah, 1879. And we're wow. in the, the most historic part in the chapel. Before it became a rescue mission, a chapel for the homeless and those on the margins and underside of society, it was a coffin factory. So they used to make coffins right where we are. Wow. And in the basement was a mortuary. Okay. So, it's was it also a furniture store? I mean, because I've, I've heard coffin factory and furniture stores kind of. Go like, I don't know, but next door, yeah. right next door to yeah. us, was like the marble factory, like where they made the headstones. Oh wow! So the headstones wow. were next door, the coffins were here, and the mortuary was in the basement. So we say it was once a place, you know, that prepared people for death and now prepares them for new life. Wow! Cool. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting place. It's the most active pulpit in New York City. We do three services a day, 7 a.m., 12 noon, and 5 p.m. We've got Billy Graham and Billy Sunday and all sorts of folks come through here. Hmm. Fanny hmm. Crosby, she was um, a partner of the mission from its founding until her death in 1915, a famous yeah. hymn writer. Uh, who wrote Blessed Assurance and Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. We actually have her piano in one of the other rooms. Oh, super cool. Wow. Yeah, so it's a, we've got a, a long history. It was very progressive in the early days. 
It was part of the social gospel movement. This is where the red letter Bible, where Jesus's words yeah. are in red, where that was invented mm. by one of our early uh, presidents, the first president, Louis Klopsch. And what would Jesus do? Charles Sheldon, he wrote for our umbrella organization, the Christian Herald, for many decades. Um, a lot of history. Yeah, mm. long, history here. long history. Yeah. And how is you know how has that mission cha- how has its mission changed over the years or has it remained pretty solid in in, in what it's done you know i i think it's remained pretty consistent yeah through the years really kind of the the dna of the organization is matthew 25 mm-hmm. where you know we find god in the person of jesus through his parable identifying with the poor the the sick the incarcerated. Um, he says, "I was sick and you, you know, visited me. I was hungry and you got me some food. I was thirsty and you got me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in." And really, that's what we try to do here through uh, three meals a day, through um, chapels where everyone's invited, unless you've been causing some chaos. Which, on occasion, <laughs> there are some folks who cause a little chaos, and we say you need to take a little break. I had a big theological discussion with a, a dear brother today. He's Muslim, and he's been church some, and he's saying, oh, the, the, the church should welcome everybody. Jesus never kicked anybody out. I'm like, well, let's slow down here. <laughs> I said, remember when he went in the temple and he got rid of all the, the money changers and said, uh, you know, my, don't, don't turn my father's house into a den of thieves. I go, but everyone's welcome here. But every now and then, if someone's you know selling drugs or getting into into fist fights or creating a lot of chaos, we just ask them to take a little break. Got to have the boundaries Gotta set up. Boundaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? So what's a, a typical day or week uh, like? Uh, and is there such a thing as a typical day or week? <laughs> yeah, every day is a little different, but yeah. we do have a, a rhythm, a very clear rhythm and order that we follow through. So today. Um, Everyone wakes up or everyone comes into the chapel about 7 o'clock, or they come in whenever they will. Chapel is from 7 to 8. It's optional. You don't have to be here for chapel to get any of our services. Some rescue missions, they're a little bit um, more stringent on that. But to get any of our services, you just have to access the service. Mm -hmm. So some people might not want to come to chapel, but they want breakfast. So they won't come here until 8 o'clock or sometime before 9 and then they'll get breakfast. But allowing it to be optional, I think has actually kind of cultivated a deeper sense of community and investment on the part of our community. We call anyone who comes into the mission our community. Sure, and, and how well attended is the, the chapel service? We have anywhere from 80 to 220 people per service. Wow. wow. With an average of about 150. So it's a lot of folks who come. Mm. I always say this is the only church where we're trying to decrease the numbers. Because (laughs) when we decrease the numbers, the number of homeless in the city are decreasing. Yeah. And what we have here is we have some folks who are in the shelter system, but mostly it's those who are uncounted. Those who have had a really bad experience in the shelter. Those who are maybe mentally ill or deep in the throes of addiction. And they sleep outside. They sleep on park benches in the subway. And they uh, 
choose to come here. Hmm. Yeah. So they come in for chapel, and then, yeah, and then, then there's breakfast. And then there's breakfast. And then today, today's a little bit more of a low-key day. Um, there's some downtime. Some people may come in and, and you know reflect or rest a little bit in the chapel. We close it so that the, the mission and the staff can rest as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, but not always. In winter, we basically never close. So if it was December, the chapel would be packed with people. Mm-hmm. And if it was really cold, you know, we're showing a movie, mm-hmm. um, sometimes a gospel movie, sometimes Indiana Jones. <laughs> and, uh, the gospel according to Indiana. Yeah, something yeah. in there. Yeah. And, then, um, and then we do it again. We do noon chapel, followed by one o'clock lunch. And then today we have our art program. Hmm. So we have some really amazing partnerships with the new museum right next door, the International Center for Photography, a bunch of local galleries, and then we have a volunteer local artist who comes every Wednesday and facilitates the art group. Hmm. So what does that look like? What do people do when they're, when they're joining that? So sometimes we do tours. We'll go to the new museum, and one of their directors will actually lead the tour through a very specific exhibit, hmm. and then they'll do something hands-on, some kind of a workshop that is reflective of the exhibit they've just seen, and they'll have a conversation about that work. And it's very interesting because these are chronically homeless men and women who are participating in this. And what I've found is many of our volunteers who come and participate in our programming are amazed at how insightful, how sensitive, how thoughtful, how much wisdom and knowledge our community mm. has. Mm. Um, today, we won't do a tour, so we'll just bust out all the art supplies and go over to the Fellowship Hall, which is also our cafeteria, and they'll do maybe acrylics or watercolors or charcoal or collage. A lot of people like to do collage. Mm. And, um, and, and they do whatever... Um, is their heart's desire. It began about four years ago. So four years ago? Um, no, like two years ago. Through my lens was a photo exhibit that actually I had the privilege of curating. And what I did was I got a bunch of disposable cameras and I gave them to about 10 members of our community. And the only mm-hmm. direction I gave them was go and take photographs of things you would like other people to see mm, cool and they went out and um, I really I got the idea it wasn't an original idea I got it from Augusta Boal who wrote Theater of the Oppressed he's in line with Paulo Freire's Pedagogy mm. of the Oppressed yeah and so it's just mentioned in there like in one paragraph in that book and when I read it I was like oh we could totally do this project here mm, cool and it was amazing they took all sorts of, of photographs and what it did was it kind of subverted what a lot of photographers do all the time, like three or four times a year. I have photographers approach me and say, I'd really like to take photographs of your community, of your population. And sometimes we'll do it for those who are willing mm-hmm. to have their photographs. But in a way that actually objectifies the community, yeah. it makes them objects. Um, but by giving them the camera, they have agency. Yeah. If they want, they can do a bunch of selfies, you know, <laughs> or take photos of one another. Or, you know, one man, Robert Perry, who passed away during that uh, project, he took a photo of, um, he took a lot of really insightful photos. One was a bed in a storefront window. 
And he said, this looks like a dream to me because mm. he hadn't slept in a bed for at least 10 years. Mm. Another photo he took was a bunch of graffiti on top of graffiti. And it was a lady's leg with a big splotch over it. And he called it mom. And he said, this reminds me of my mom. She left when I was two or something like that. So it was really like, um, kind of gave a critical perspective into the life of the homeless, allowed the viewer of the photo, of the photographs a real intimate experience with the homeless community rather than just looking at a picture of a homeless person sitting there looking sad yeah you know mm. it, it, it sounds like it gave uh gave voice to their yeah, experience um, definitely in a way that it could maybe even be heard yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. how did how did you get connected with this work originally and, and what kind of inspired you to to be working here and doing this yeah so um, I was working at Youth Ministries for Peace and Justice in the South Bronx with Alexi Torres Fleming, and that was my first real ministry job. And I did that for a few years as the development director. And that's where I really learned a lot about, you know, being in solidarity with those on the margins of society and not trying to be a voice for them, like which is what this project mm -hmm, came out of, mm -hmm. but finding ways for them to find their own voice. Hmm. which is exactly what that project was was meant to do. And so I did that for a few years, and uh, my wife and I, we created an intentional community called Radical Living, and we did that for almost eight years. And I'd be, you know, I had this network of other people in the city, other ministers, doing different but like-minded work. And when the founder of Youth Ministries for Peace and Justice left that position, I felt it was also my time to find another position. So I stayed there for a few months. And then I got a call from uh, the now chief program officer of this organization, James Winans. And I knew him from the intentional community world. Um, and he asked me if I knew anyone who was looking for a position as a grant writer. And I said, well, put my name in the hat. <laughs> and so I did that for one year, but I did it with the intention and the hope that I would end up down here at the mission. And it was actually one year, my one year anniversary, that I came down here and came into my role as the director of the chapel and compassionate care, mm. where I'm basically the pastor of the community, of the homeless community. Yeah. Cool. Became the pastor of the homeless community. So, so what, what's your? I mean, what's your story? Like, what? Where does this? I mean, you. We know that you were, you know, born and raised in God's country of Wisconsin. Amen. I mean, there it is. There it is. <laughs> so, and uh, and somehow you escaped. No, but I mean, you. But you, you. That's where you grew up, and and in in so many ways, you, you're a million miles away. But yeah. I mean, this what you're doing now comes from somewhere. Yeah. Right. It does. True. So. My parents were very young when they had me. My mom was 16 and my dad was 15. Hmm. And so my mom raised me on her own basically the whole time. There were a couple times where I went and stayed you know, with my dad for a little while or maybe a grandparent. Um, but basically it was like me and my mom against the world. Hmm. And she's always had like a lot of grit and tenacity, a lot of good fight in her. Mm -hmm. So she was able to rise above like 
being an unwed teenage mom. Um, so I was, you know, a year and a half or almost two at her high school graduation. So she walked with her class, graduated on time, and um, we moved around a lot, about 20 times before I was 17 years old. Mm. And um, I saw her do all different kinds of jobs, working in restaurants, um, working in all sorts of factories, um, milk and goats, Mm. you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. Mm. But she always emphasized education, and she went to school a couple of times and finally got her degree in computer programming. And then we began to rise up. But during that process, she had some very troubled relationships that I was witness to and part of in many ways. And um, she escaped from those relationships and she got stronger and stronger. Um, and then she, uh, we moved to Florida for a while. We moved back. We ended up actually homeless ourselves for a little while mm. in middle school. And there was a time where she's working like four jobs at a time, four jobs, you know, in, in at once basically. Mm. And I was 13 years old, and one of her jobs was overnight, so I was basically living on my own because mm. I wouldn't see her at all. I'd see her for maybe 30 minutes after school before she went to a job, and that's when I began getting into a lot of trouble, you know girls and smoking weed and drinking and fighting and stuff Mm -hmm. like that just crying out basically and we ended up getting evicted several times basically because of my actions Mm -hmm. my ruckusness and i got into a lot of trouble at that time and they were considering putting me in foster care Mm -hmm. Um, but they gave me a consent decree which meant if you stay good for six months you stay with your mom hmm. and I did not want to go anywhere apart from my mom even though I was acting out so I was good for six months after six months we moved to another town in another county and I started all over again and they didn't know me so I kept I kept that pattern going for a while and um, at 15 she got married to a really good man she's been married like 20 years now and she really you know got into her career and now you know they're like kind of a typical suburban you know, family with um, got a little brother and um, a couple cars and a house that they own, you know. Mm-hmm. So now they're doing really good. But I left home at 17 just after I graduated high school, which I barely graduated. I was suspended many times. They had an expulsion hearing. My mom cried at the expulsion hearing so that I could stay in. And I blamed the school board. How could you make my mom cry? And I'm like, no, no, no. I was the one who actually made her cry. Uh, but they let me stay in, and I graduated. You know, Wisconsin, a lot of small schools. I went to Partyville High School. Um, does not live up to his name. And, uh, and, and out of a class of 48, I think I was 47. Mm. So I was like, yeah. but I made it. You made doesn't, it. Doesn't matter. Yeah. The ranking, that's what I've learned, you know. And um, then I left home, and I... I traveled out west for the whole summer, and the age of 17 went to like the Rainbow Family Gathering and hitchhiked all over up and down California, you know, Route 1 and 101, and and I had a really rich summer experience. Went back to Wisconsin, and of course I worked at a cheese factory. Like, like <laughs> you, you do. <laughs> I mean, and, and who of us from Wisconsin hasn't worked at a cheese factory? <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, I did that for a solid year. Had my own apartment with a couple of buddies from high school. And um, I saved up as much as I could, like $100 a week, and ended up going to uh, Europe and India. 
Yeah. And I traveled mm. for an entire year. In, in Europe, I was hanging out with Hare Krishna. I had yeah. a dhoti and a sika, and I was chanting the Maha Mantra. And I've always loved to read, so yeah. I read a lot of their texts. Like, you know, Mahabharata, and Srimad Bhagavatam, and Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita, and all these books. I just love their stories. Then I went to India, where my dad's big sister and her husband are missionaries to the deaf. Hmm. And um, they didn't really try to evangelize me, but I asked for a Bible, and I guess the Bible kind of evangelized me. And I came to faith in, uh, around Easter time, 1997, and I was baptized and you know, living out my faith, and I came back to the States, and I quickly fell away from my faith. Mm. Um, I still believed in Jesus, like I mentally assented mm. to the doctrine, but I had a hard time reconcile, reconciling like Americanism and Christianity, right. and like mm. the American flag, and everyone seemed very like middle class, and I was like, this doesn't feel like the Jesus who I've been following who won me over mm -hmm. this body this church didn't seem to to fit with what i was believing and i'll see that as an excuse just to go back into the world to do the things i had been doing before mm -hmm. but um i managed you know to go to uw rock county you rock party of Ohio, <laughs> you rock. and um, did that for a while traveled to south america for six months i love traveling i would just save up and work um then I went to UW-Madison, graduated with a degree in international studies. Um, I'd been working for a railroad company, Wisconsin Southern Railroad, okay. a little regional railroad company. Did that four years seasonally. And then by the time I um, graduated, I had a little pension, which I'm like, give it to me now. I'm like, I'm not going to wait until <laughs> I'm 65. I want my money now. Mm -hmm. So I took it and I traveled again and I went to Europe. Uh, basically, I went to Amsterdam for mm -hmm. a while. Had some friends, some Dutch friends over there. I went there, and then uh, my plan was to go to Warsaw or Prague and work for one of the English language expat newspapers. But it was winter. And I was like, I'm not going to Eastern Europe. Right. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to North Africa. So I went to Morocco, and I wrote one article for um, some English-speaking Moroccan magazine. But basically, I just blew through my blew through my pension. Had a great time. Spent all my money. Went back to the States. Um, it was kind of like, what am I going to do now? And I was having dinner with a bunch of friends. And one guy said, I'm going to teach English in South Korea. I said, me too. <laughs> like, Let's go. So it was actually six days from my application until I was in Korea. It was crazy. Wow. I guess they, I don't know if they did a background check. I don't know. But they six days and I was there. And um, you had a pulse, and then you were accepted. You know, I was <laughs> yeah, there. Right. But it, it, I was there for three months, uh -huh. and then because I used to like to smoke weed, um, I was caught up with this guy who was selling. He was another teacher, but he was Korean. And because it was in my system, I got charged with trafficking narcotics because this guy was some kind of a kingpin i didn't even know he's bringing in stuff from like thailand with some russian guy it was like beyond my imagination mm. i didn't know i just hung out with the guy because he had hashish <laughs> and he was my co-worker <laughs> and uh, he got busted and then there was a dragnet and everybody around him all the english teachers got picked up and tested and they have a zero tolerance drug policy mm. and if it's in your system 
you're going to serve time. So I got charged with trafficking, but convicted of usage. I served three months, had to pay like $5,000 in fines. Mm. And then I got deported. So I got this passport with this great like deported stamp on it. Um, and I got deported, went back to the States, super depressed. Mm. I was like, what is going on? But I started reading the scriptures again when I was in, in the Gucci soul, when I was serving time in, in South Korea. And I was reading the Old Testament, and I was reading through Judges, and it was the story of Jephthah, mm. like kind of an insignificant or little quick story, but it's how he was the oldest son of uh, a harlot and kind of like a, a nobleman, you might mm. say. And because of his bastard birth, his other siblings were like, pushed him out. And it says that he, depending on your translation, gathered around him adventurers or bandits. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of go together. And so I, uh, it, he had redemption in a story. Like all of his brothers, his family called him back and said, lead us. Lead us mm-hmm. to, to freedom and liberation. You know, restore our, our cities that have been sacked by our enemies. For some reason, this story really spoke to me. And um, I began coming back to my faith. Went back to Madison, had a couple buddies out here. One is still a high school teacher and one is still a brewer. Mm. He brews um, Six Point Craft Ales. He started the company out here and doing cool. really good with that. And my buddy who's teaching uh, math, just the heart of a teacher. Mm. And they said, come on out to Brooklyn. It's going on, man. <laughs> Come to Brooklyn. You're going to love it. So I came out here, crashed on my buddy's couch for a month, and then um, met the woman who would become my wife. And, uh, you know, we weren't Christians. And I began writing for High Times magazine. I was the roving reggae reporter. <laughs> so I'd go to all these reggae shows. And... Um, and was, you know, having a good life. I was also writing for, like, Rolling Stone, music reviews, and mm. did stuff for Penthouse, also music reviews. Um, it didn't matter. I was just mm-hmm. like, hey, whoever's yeah. going to pay me to write, I'll write. Yeah. And I was doing pretty good, I, I would say. But I started feeling so empty. And one of my jobs was actually to cover all of the High Times parties. So all the parties they have and they host, my job was to be there and to, like, write the story about it. So my friends were like... Man, you're living the life. Mm-hmm. Wow. But I just started feeling so empty. And I knew, I felt it must be spiritual. And I was on a train and I was going up to meet an editor. And it was like this old West Indian with a King James Bible mm-hmm. got on there and he was thumping that Bible, but in a very peculiar way. I felt like the spirit was like right at me, you know? He was saying, like, the church is the living, breathing body of Christ. You know, and he's talking about how there's this shadow, this illusion of church, which isn't real. But a lot of people are drawn to the illusion. Mm. But we're called to be drawn to, to Christ's body, to that fellowship of believers. And it kind of brought me back to like my um, critique that I had when I first came to my faith and came back to the States. And I was like, wow, it's true. And I felt like... I've since like looked back at it. I felt like I was in the Holy of Holies as I, as I was on that A train between Delancey and High Street going under the East River. And I was sitting before the judgment seat. And I felt like convicted of everything I was doing. 
Mm. A lot of stuff, you know, like I felt like I'm doing some dirt. I'm caught up in some foolishness, even if the world is embracing it and affirming it. And so I turned, like I repented, to use good religious language. <laughs> I, I turned from that toward the other seat, the mercy seat. And I began to get convicted again. But it was like of God's oceans of grace and mercy and love. And the weight that I had felt before, before the judgment seat, where it felt like there were actual shackles on my hand, like I'd had them on me for years, but I had just recently become aware of it. When I turned to the mercy seat, I felt like released and, and freed, um, basically, to, uh, to live the life God would have me live. When I got off the train, I felt like so light. It was really weird. Like yeah. I felt like unburdened emotionally and spiritually, but also physically. So I just started running, and I felt like I could just take off. Um, but I never made it to the meeting. I went back to the apartment I was sharing with my girlfriend, and I told her, Whoa, I found Jesus again. Mm. She's like, you're crazy. <laughs> what do you mean? You're just going for a meeting with an editor. And, now you're like, Jesus freak, what's happening? And um, But within three months, she had a very similar experience mm. of her own. She was going through a lot in her life personally. And um, she found like basically freedom and liberation and forgiveness and love and all of that in her walk. So we ended up getting getting married, and next month it'll be 10 years, and we got two awesome little babies. Congrats. Who, not, they're not babies anymore. They're eight and seven. <laughs> but, uh, but I feel like God's like, just keeps redeeming us, you know, and um, doing a mighty work. In April, we went to Egypt, and my mom went with. And um, it's just like, who would have thought, like, basically mm -hmm. what some might perceive as, like, white trash or trailer trash, because I lived in trailers, mm -hmm. you know, um, would be like traveling around the world and getting educated. And I got my master's, and I'm working on a doctorate at Boston University. And my mom's like riding camels up Mount Sinai. And you know, <laughs> who would ever thought that this unwed teenage mom would like be doing all that she's doing? And that yeah. my kids are now afforded all of these opportunities. You know, yeah. I let them know all the time. Go, you guys are blessed. Yeah, I'm like Chloe, Elgin. You guys don't even know how good you got it. You know, they've lived in the same house their entire life. By the time mm. I was their age, I'd moved a whole bunch already. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. and it inform, you know, so it totally informs your work. It's just, right. It's just part of who who you are, how you're hardwired, how you see the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like all of those experiences basically were kind of leading me for this work, at least for a season. Yeah. I mean, in God's time, seasons can be a long time. Sure. Right, right. now, it's been you know coming up on on seven years, um, but I feel like he's. He's prepared me. And he, now this is maybe preparing even for a next thing. Who knows yeah, what mm -hmm. God's doing. Yeah. So you, and in the process, uh, you wrote a book. And yeah. it sounds like you're working on another. Uh, t tell us about the book. It's uh, Radical Spirituality, Repentance, Resistance, and Revolution. Yeah. So it was published in 2014. And Orbis Books, who is my favorite publisher actually so when they said they were going to publish it i was like wow i'm like this is amazing because they're the ones who publish all the like liberation theology works mm -hmm. like james cone and mm -hmm. gustavo gutierrez and some of the best works cornell west has gone through them um so when they said they're going to publish it i was like yes i did it you know i've always loved writing and so this was my first my first book my only book out right now uh -huh. 
And it's basically um, kind of the theology that I've developed um, over the course of my ministry. It's um, part testimony, part kind of um, political critique. Um, and then it also tells the story of the community that my wife and I founded in Brooklyn. Okay. And kind of like why we found it and what are the the underpinnings of, of doing the work of com of, of community what is the context um, yeah so that was out in 2014 and now I'm working on the next book which is pretty much written and um, I'm talking to a couple publishers and I'm hoping it'll be out in the fall and that'll be a work on the Bowery mission okay. so uh, there have been, a, been several books actually about three or four um, that have been published but it's been about 75 years since a book has been published. So it's about time, maybe? About time. <laughs> I think so. It's been a little while. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So are you going to tell the story of the last 75 years? I mean, how, what, what is that book, uh, what does it look like? If, I'm going to tell the whole story. So uh -huh. going back from like the very beginning yeah. and retell some of the stories that were published in God on the Bowery and Great Heart of the Bowery and Miracle of Answered Prayer, which are the three main books written by uh, the fellas who are on my wall, these photographs of the two guys in black and white, mm. um, who had this office way back. Um, it's basically a continuation of their story, but because their books are out of print, I want to make sure that their stories are still captured. Still living out there. Yeah, so yeah. I kind of I retell their stories. Mm. Um, cool. Yeah, and there's a little more like, uh, there's a chapter on theology. What kind of theology is formed in this work? There's a, a chapter on um, art, film, and culture because this neighborhood has been like a hub of art, film, and culture for a long, long time. Um, so I talk about how that's happened, how we do theater of the oppressed here. At least we have done that in different mm. seasons. Um, talk about different artists and actors who've come through here, like KRS-One. Oh yeah, yeah. He came through here way back in the early '80s, huh. and um, he came for a Thanksgiving some years ago. Uh, so a lot of folks have have come through. J.C. Penney came to Faith here in oh, 1910. Really? Um, so I tell his story. So a lot of stories that were not included in those early books. Uh, but I found other places. I did so much research. Mm. It was actually part of my master's thesis at Union Theological Seminary. So that gave me a real like push to do some deep research on the mission. Mm. So, yeah, so hopefully that'll be out this fall. That's my hope. Cool, cool, yeah. cool. Good. Um, you talked a little bit about how, um, this, about how this work has shaped theology and also how... Um, and also just like all of your travels and kind of experiencing different cultures and different people and different views. How has your own view of God, your own theology shifted over time? And maybe it's, and if it's shifting now, what's going on? What are you seeing? Yeah, it's really good. So right now, um, the last two years, probably, I've really been looking at it like God is Lord of the Sabbath. Like, what does that mean? And I've really been wrestling with the idea of, of, of what does Sabbath mean for the Christian? And if Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, how come we're not, like, worshiping this God who is Lord of the Sabbath, or at least this aspect of his deity? Um, and it kind of struck me 
when I was riding my bike home and I go through the ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhood where the Hasidic Jews live. And I always rode, I would ride through it most days. And on Shabbos, on their Shabbat, um, all the businesses are shut down on Friday evening. All the flower vendors are out. Most of them are Mexican and they're selling like flowers. So I'd usually give my wife a bouquet of flowers. And um, one day I was riding through and there's a little Jewish boy with his little side locks and his and his outfit on. And he calls me over and he says, can you come in to my house and turn on our water heater or something? I was like, yeah, let me, sure. Sounds like an interesting little thing. And I went in there and I turned on the water heater, but I was just struck by like the smells and the familial atmosphere. Mm. I was like, you know what? Maybe my family needs to explore what it means to observe Sabbath, Mm -hmm. what it means to enter into this like deep and sacred space that is outside of time to actually enter into uh, a moment of eternity in the midst of our week so we began to practice in our own way um we had just kind of began to dissolve our intentional community and work on developing a nonprofit. but i was still like really in full full gear like i just written my book i was working here i was half-time pastor of a church up in Queens, um, going to se- finishing up seminary, you know, married with my kids, all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, Sabbath, we're going to do this. We're going to do Sabbath. <laughs> and I started like reaching out to people and say, join us for Sabbath. We're doing Sabbath, you know, and our Sabbath community began to grow. And I was like, after like a few months, I'm like, I think I'm doing this wrong. <laughs> like I'm trying to like grow. You're making work out of Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what yeah. I was doing. And um, so uh, I said, let's stop all of this. Let's just have our family like come together, light a couple of candles, have like our best meal of the week, which we prepare before like sundown. And um, let's just really rest together. And now we've been doing that for a while and we'll go on walks in the evening, you know, and at dinner, um, I read a lot of books like about Sabbath, like especially Abraham Heschel's mm. Sabbath, you mm-hmm. know, and a, a bunch of other works too. And it talks about cultivating a sense of nobility and dignity and regality. The queen mm. of Sabbath comes into our home and we are to be like noble people. So I tell my kids at dinner, I'm like, sit nobly. <laughs> We're, we're amidst amongst royalty right now. You know? How is that received? They love it. Yeah. It's like yeah. role play, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell them, I go, you know, our 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 God, our Father, is the King of Kings, you know, and Queen of Queens. I go. We are these kings and queens. We are nobility. And so we'll go for walks in the evening, on, like on Friday. We only do it on Friday. We haven't extended it into Saturday. Hopefully we will get to do like the full 25-hour Sabbath someday, but right now it's just like our Friday evening. But we'll go for walks, and I'll be like, walk nobly, children. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, Father. (laughs) The the idea of it, you know. And the hope is that it'll overflow throughout the week. And Sabbath is so connected to Mm, justice. mm, 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 So mm. we look at what is Sabbath. It's it's for creation care. It's for the environment. Sustainability is for people who are working. It's for men and women. You know, it's for everybody so that they can have rest, not just the upper echelon of society, but for everybody. And it goes deeper from like 
the, the Shemitah every seven years. There's a Sabbath, like a, a kind of a, a little jubilee. Mm. And then there's the real jubilee every seven Shemitahs, every seven, seven years, every 49 or 50 years, which is like everyone is freed. Any Anyone who is a slave, they're liberated. Anyone who lost their homes because of debt, they get their homes back. So there's all these like moments of justice, hmm. and it's talked about throughout the scriptures from Isaiah to Ezekiel. So when Jesus gets there, he's like the culmination. He's like the Lord of of Sabbath, like the Lord of justice and mercy. And so it's actually also a great opportunity just to kind of go deeper with our family and my yeah. children. Yeah. Like, how do we worship the Lord of Sabbath? How does that overflow into our week? Hmm. How does, how do you uh, handle that? And, and what I mean, what's the tension of that in living in a city like New York? Yeah, that just doesn't stop, right? Um, that is the neat thing of like having like a whole bunch of Orthodox Jewish people living around us, and also uh, there's a fairly significant Muslim community. So there are a couple of mosques around us. So people talk about. How it, you know, New York City, it's a fiercely secular city, but it's also super religious. Mm-hmm. So even in our in our neighborhood, we live in a brownstone, we'll sit on our stoop, like very Brooklyn, you know, mm-hmm. and we're sitting out there and it'll be around sunset, and then we'll hear the Sabbath whistle, the pre-whistle, 15 minutes before Sabbath. There's like, ooh, kind of a whistle. And then we'll hear the evening called a prayer like Laila la la akbar and then a little after that we'll hear the official sabbath whistle like boo you know and then we're sitting there doing our christian sabbath and i'm like wow we're like we're christian but we're really part of abraham's tent right here yeah because we got mm-hmm. our muslim sisters and brothers over here entering into worship we got our jewish sisters and brothers over here entering into their shabbos and here we are you know just resting in God's holy presence. We're all in the tent together right now, mm-hmm. even if we're in different corners of the tent mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but that kind of reconciles that a little bit because there is that kind of religious affinity mm-hmm. in the city. And Brooklyn is very different than Manhattan. Brooklyn has its own kind of rhythm. Um, it's more like, it's not these high rise buildings. Downtown's getting high rise, but it's like very much feels like a village. Mm. So people are sitting on their stoop and yeah, yeah. I, I noticed that a lot yesterday, as because we just got into town last night just before dinner, and noticed that kind of as we're walking down the street, how many people were out, you know, talking to each other, talking to people walking past, uh, hanging outside, and uh, and just kind of it felt like there was a different pace. There was even a lot of people out, you know, walking home. I imagine and that sort of thing, yeah. but um, it wasn't what we just noticed this morning walking around this right. area too you know it yeah. gets crazy around here even yeah. crazier like in midtown mm. yeah sometimes it takes me almost as long to get from the corner of my block to my house as it does to get from my work on the bowery to that corner wow yeah because it's like 22 minutes yeah to bicycle from here to home and then like when i get on my block if everyone's out, I gotta talk to Oswald, gotta <laughs> say hi to Donna and Dee, you know, gotta see what, what Ryan's up to, you know, so um, it's, uh, it, it enters a whole other pace once you get, you hit home. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm still kind of stuck on, uh, on on your talk about Sabbath and and just there's this experience of Sabbath that I've had um, when I haven't been stopping, mm-hmm. where the first feeling is like almost kind of you're wrecked, just despair, like like because you're just hooked on the adrenaline of, right. of it. At least that's how I'm hardwired. Have you experienced anything yeah, like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, especially like when I realized we need the Sabbath. Mm. I was just like productive, got to produce stuff, got to do stuff, got to keep going, got to be active, you know? And, um, it was just like kind of for a while, it's like, wow, I'm getting stuff done. But after a while, it's like, I'm kind of doing it on my own strength. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not even slowing down to rest with God anymore. Cause sometimes it's like, God just wants to not to be, um, heretical or whatever, but, Maybe just wants to chill with us. Mm-hmm. Maybe just wants to be with us, and he wants us to build the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. But maybe the way that God is building His kingdom is different than the way that the world is trying to build its kingdom. Maybe right. it's just through relationship and being together. Mm-hmm. And um, Sabbath helps me to be mindful of that—that that I don't need to do all of these things. And it kind of goes back to what you're saying as far as the the you know the vision of yeah of the church as as these as these people who are the body i should say the body of christ um is the living breathing body of christ mm-hmm. and being in relationship with the body of christ and 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 that's just another way of being in relationship right um yeah. in sabbath the challenge is um, in my work with the homeless and the poor and those hurting so much, they don't get an opportunity for Sabbath. Right. I mean, even though they're, some of them work, some of them work a lot. Some have such severe mental illness that they'll never be able to work. And even though they're not working in the traditional nine to five sense, looking for work as a full-time job and just being homeless is like the hardest job ever. And so they don't really ever get time to rest. It's like when Jesus said, you know, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head to rest. They're very much, they very much don't have anywhere to lay their head to rest. They're on the subway, they nod off, authority comes along, says, got to move along. They slip on the park bench, got to keep moving, got to keep moving. Mm-hmm. Even sometimes here, we have to close the chapel. We gotta say, fellas, we gotta gotta close the chapel for a while. You can't be here. But usually we'll, you know, feel convicted and be like, all right, just go ahead, <laughs> go ahead. I told one guy today, even though I'm the chapel director, I said, go two guys. I said, all right, fellas, go ahead and sleep. But if someone else tells you to move, you, you, you better get get moving. But no one's gonna, because I'm the one with that <laughs> um, But yeah, so they and so Sabbath for me helps me to be mindful of the works of justice that we're called to do and that it's not my strength but it's god's strength and i can empty myself of myself and uh, hopefully in the emptying be filled with god's overflow so that when i come back here because this work can be really hard um that i can hold others burdens in a more tender way that i can care more deeply that i can be more empathetic when I'm listening to the stories they're sharing. Yeah. So I, f- I find that Sabbath helps me um, to minister more deeply from my heart and hopefully to their heart. Cool. Yeah. 
So Jason opened my eyes to the idea that being homeless can be the toughest job ever. The homeless don't have a place to stay, so they can never rest. They get kicked off of subways and buses, kicked off of, of park benches and street corners. The homeless are in constant motion. There's no place to be, so there's no place to rest. And we were not created that way. We need time to stop, breathe, rest. We need time to be. And that's what Sabbath is all about. It's something everyone with a pulse needs. And that's how Sabbath and justice come together. As Jason said, Sabbath is intimately connected to justice. In the same way, we all need a place to live, food to eat, access to clean water, safety in our homes and in our streets, an environment that is cared for. We all need Sabbath. It's a basic human need. It's for men and women, rich and poor, religious, non-religious. It's for everybody so that they can have rest. So Jason works for justice and tries to restore Sabbath giving a place to rest for those on the streets, creating space in the life of his family to breathe deeply and to enjoy life. I also hear him issuing an invitation for you and me to do the same, working for justice and restoring Sabbath. What does that look like for you today? Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. To stay up to date with all the things going on in the Sandbox, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. And we'd love to hear from you. So let us know what you think about the podcast. And if you'd like, rate and review us on iTunes. Join in the conversation. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it. There's always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time, we'll see you. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox. <laughs>